0: Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Comstock, and it's just so great to see all of you here today. Um, Our scripture for today is from Mark 12, verses 41 through 45. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Well, good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you, good to be with you i so glad that you're able to be here tonight. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosher, and it's my privilege and honor to get to open the Word with you this evening. Uh, I wanted to um, draw your attention first to Mark chapter 12. This is where we've been really for the last j- just over a year we've been spending in this book, so uh, getting fairly familiar with where to turn in your Bibles at this point. But if you're not there already, you can turn to Mark chapter 12, beginning in Verse 41. About 10 years ago, I had the opportunity, um, Jessica and I, to lead a short-term missions team uh, to Italy. So the, uh, the opportunity that we had was to go into an international church in Northern Italy. It was a, a church that was interesting for a lot of reasons. It was relatively small, probably less than 100 people. But what made it unique is that it, it was made up of individuals from about 35 different countries. Um, So you think about it, Italy, um, for for a lot of reasons, uh, geographically speaking, because of where it's located, there's a lot of opportunity for immigration and those sorts of things. And so this church kind of springs up. Um, God does a really, really neat work there, calls all kinds of people into the middle of that. And so as the church grows, all of a sudden you've got this massive representation of people from all over that portion of the world, 35 different countries uh, represented. Many of those nations were African nations, which comes into the story in just a moment. So when the church gathers, what you find is that it becomes kind of this cultural smorgasbord. It's got all of these different features and all of these different elements that make it really unique as compared to any other church that I've ever experienced or seen before. So you had things like the, like the songs would all be sung primarily um, to American tunes, but they're with Italian words. The preaching was done primarily in English and Italian, and they would switch back and forth depending on who was preaching on a particular week. Special music might be done by people from different portions of the world in their uh, in their original language and all those sorts of things. So just a really unique environment. But as an American walking into this church and experiencing it for the very first time, the thing that was most unique to me was watching them, uh, watching them receive the offering. Because they didn't have a box in the back where people could drop their offerings. They didn't even pass plates down the aisles for people to drop their offerings. What they did is they, they set a box up right up at the front of the room, kind of up on a little podium, and people would dance their way to the front of the room to drop off their offerings. Now, I'm not going to show you exactly what that looks like because no one needs to see that, but you can imagine, you can imagine a scene like that, but as you're watching, all of these people begin to dance their way up. What struck me in particular were the African families. They were dressed in brightly colored tribal garb, and as they're making their way forward, they're, they're making these swirling motions with their hands and their bodies, and they're turning, and they're making their way up front and then dropping their offerings and returning to their seats. And here's me just walking down the aisle very gingerly to drop off a little offering that I had uh, as we walk in our way to the front. But I remember asking the pastor after the service, I said, what, can you explain to me what the thinking is as to why... This is the way that people make their offerings. And he said, well, the African Christians in particular view, uh, view the offering as an act of worship, which obviously we would all recognize and agree with. But, but he said what they want to do is they want to demonstrate through their actions and the way they actually go about uh, giving their offering that it is, in fact, an act of worship. They wanted to demonstrate that and put that on display. And while I don't know that that a dance is necessary in order to communicate that idea, I can appreciate the heart behind it. Because what it seeks to do is convey that the worth of your giving is not based in the amount that you give, but on the intent of your heart. So I don't know that anybody said this better than C.S. Lewis, who I quote often. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, all of our offerings whether of music or martyrdom, are like the intrinsically worthless present of a child, which a father values indeed, but values only for the intention. And I love that Lewis chooses these two particular ideas to demonstrate what it is to make an offering or an act of worship to God. He says, music or martyrdom, something as simple as what a child can take part in in singing a song in a a worship service as the church gathers to something as extreme as actually having to literally lay down your life for your understanding of who Jesus Christ is, what Lewis says is ultimately what makes those things so valuable isn't the act itself itself. It's the heart behind those offerings that makes it so unbelievably valuable. And he compares it to an offering or a gift that a child would give his father. And we can all think of people like that or stories like that in our lives. You imagine a child coming to his father with a little stick house made of popsicle sticks, and you can see the glue on the outside, and it's not quite square, and it probably doesn't have a lot of stability to it and all those sorts of things. But the father values it and loves it. Why? because it comes from a heart of love from his child. See, the truth is there is no amount of money, nor is there any degree of excellence on our part that can meet the perfect standard for glorifying God. But what God is most concerned about is the heart and purpose with which we give. And we are given that example in this text this evening. In order to understand what's happening in this text, we actually have to look back at the text that we studied last week. If you remember in that passage, Mark records for us the story, uh, that he records for us in this passage, the story of the widow just on the heels of his account of the scribes' hypocrisy. And so Jesus is speaking at the end of Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 38, and he warns the people that are gathered in the synagogue, and he says that to them, you need to be careful of the scribes, these people who claim to be religious leaders, who claim to have, spiritual authority in your life you actually need to be cautious not only of what they teach but also of their lifestyle he said these very same scribes that would would stand up uh, before you and, and claim to speak on behalf of the Lord like to go into the markets to demonstrate their uh, to, to demonstrate the position that they have in the synagogue they wear these long robes with bells on the bottom they like to receive fancy greetings from the people that recognize them there they they like to sit in the best seats in the synagogue they like places of honor at feasts, and then he uses this phrase in verse 40, they devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, they make long prayers, and Jesus ends that by saying, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus' harshest words are always reserved for those who claimed religiosity, but lived a life devoid of spiritual understanding. And remember the context of all of this. Jesus is calling out these teachers while he's standing in the temple, while he's standing in the place from which they would would speak and preach and teach. And the scribes at this moment are already plotting the murder of Jesus Christ. They have murder in their hearts. They had already begun to plan Jesus Christ's demise. And in that moment, knowing what was on their hearts, Jesus still does not hold back his condemnation from them. And he uses particularly graphic language by saying they devour widows' houses. This is a reference to the idea that widows in this time are a uniquely special class of people. Because to be a widow in this particular time meant that you were a vulnerable person. This is a culture in which your income and your well-being was completely dependent on the income of a husband. And when a woman lost her husband, she lost all of her source of income, all of her stability, all of her hope for the future, all of her hope for a comfortable life, all of those things immediately evaporated. This was an economy that was built around able-bodied men. And what we're given in this text today stands as a very real contrast to the heart of the scribes that we saw last week. So look, if you will, at verse 41. And he, that is Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box, many rich people put in large sums. So Jesus has been teaching for a while. If you remember back, he's had a very long day. He's been answering these challenging and difficult questions from the religious elite and the religious authorities. He's now confronted the scribes in the synagogue, and so Jesus is exhausted at the end of the day. He's trying to find a place to sit down, and where he decides to sit, he has a perfect view of the temple court, the Temple of Women is actually what the name of it was, where people would come in to give their offerings. And so as he sits down, he's watching people from all over the region make their way into the synagogue to begin to make their offerings at the temple. The court of the temple was dotted with these brass offering, uh, brass offering canisters all around the inside of the walls. There were 13 of them located strategically around that wall so that at any given point you could walk in and make your way into one of these brass canisters to make your donation. And the canisters were actually shaped like the bell of a trumpet. They were wide on the top and they funneled down as you went in. Whenever I think about this, I always think about those old, um, those old spiral wishing wells that you would see at shopping malls. I don't know if you remember those, but they were these big round funnels. You could drop a quarter at the outside, and it would begin to roll its way in, and as it got closer and closer to the center, it would spin faster and faster, and it would make all kinds of noise. That's the same idea as what these offering canisters looked like in the temple. So when people came in Whether or not they were trying to draw attention to themselves as they dropped their money into those canisters, inevitably it would make a loud clanging noise. And people who came with the specific intention of of making a large, ostentatious display of their wealth would give by tossing in large, heavy coins into the rim of the trumpet where they would clang and resonate as they fell and slid and scraped down into the canister. And Jesus is observing, watching all of these wealthy people come in to make their donations. And what we're told is that those people who had much, gave much. Now the reason I point that out is this. Notice that there is no specific condemnation of the wealthy in this passage. But the point here that is hard to miss is that anyone coming in to give a donation inevitably drew attention to themselves because it was a loud process to go go through. And if you were watching this scene, if you were visiting the temple that day, if you were walking into the synagogue and you walked through this temple where people were making their donations, a little widow giving a couple of coins would have gone completely unnoticed. But recognize what Mark says in verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So here comes this poor, unnamed, widow woman. A woman of no social standing, a woman of no income, she had no security, she really had no, no practical hope for the future. And she comes in with no expectation that anyone is going to see her or that anyone is going to notice her. And to put this into perspective, we're told that she gives these two small copper coins. If you remember the story of the Pharisees and the Herodians coming to Jesus and challenging him about paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus asked them for a coin, and the Pharisees respond by providing him with a denarius. Now, a denarius was the equivalent of one day's wage for the average worker. It was what you would have received at the end of the day. And to put all of these numbers in comparison, to drop these two small coins and that would have made a penny, meant that her offering was worth one 64th of a denarius. One 64th of one day's wage is all that this woman put into the offering by any human standard. This was an insignificant amount of money. But notice what happens, verse 43. And he that is Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them truly I say to you this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box now here's what's interesting no one's no one's noticed this woman She's come into the court of women. She's walked past many other people. There are inevitably people around her who are incredibly wealthy. You can hear the clanging of money all around you. There are certainly some people there who are coming solely to put on display the wealth and generosity as they make their their donations to the synagogue. And here comes this woman thinking that no one's watching her, that no one's paying attention, and that no one knows who she is to make her small and significant deposit at the synagogue. And no one in this place noticed except for Jesus. No one noticed except for the only person who mattered. And notice here what Jesus does. He calls the disciples to himself. Jesus is calling to them, and you can almost imagine him saying to them, you've got you've to come see this. Do you see that little poor old woman over there? Do you see her, the one who's all by herself, the one who's walking away from that offering canister? Did you see what she just did? She just walked over there, and guess how much she put in? She put in two small coins. And Jesus is ecstatic at what it is that he's witnessing. And you can imagine the disciples saying, well, so what? And Jesus said, well, you don't, you don't understand. In fact, he uses this phrase to them. He says, truly I say to you, which really means you need to listen up. You need to hear this. Don't miss the significance of what just happened. You're missing the point. She just gave more than anyone else. And the disciples would have been thinking, so what? Did you see what the rich guy gave over at trumpet number three? Did you hear? Did you hear the volume with which that offering was dropped? And so Jesus explains further in verse 44, for they all contributed, notice this language, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. You remember when the Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus and as they mockingly made a show of recognizing who Jesus Christ was, one of the things that they said to him is, we know that you are not impressed by people. And what they meant as an insult, Jesus took as a compliment, and he puts it on display in this passage. And what Jesus says to the disciples here, calls to mind what the Lord said to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, when he said, for the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesus clarifies by saying, look, all of these people that are here, they're all making donations and they're all giving offerings and they're all doing something that is expected of them, but understand they're all giving out of their wealth. In other words, what he's saying is all of these people, they may have come and they may have given a lot of money, but they're all giving out of their margin, He's saying this is money that is going to go unmissed in their life. That's that's what he's saying when he says they gave out of the abundance. He's saying they don't even feel it. No matter how much they've dropped in, it doesn't even affect their life. It hasn't affected anything about who they are or what they do or the way that they live. But this woman, Jesus says, has given beyond what she can justify. Jesus says she gave, and this language is fascinating, she gave all she had to live on. And the Greek word that is translated as had to live on is the word bios. It's the word for physical life. Jesus says here she was taking food out of her own mouth. She put in everything. She put in her sustenance. She just gave her life away. So notice the juxtaposition that we see in this passage. Those who made a display of their giving and received the admiring glances of those in the temple, in that moment, they got all the praise they were ever going to receive right then and there. But this woman, whose name isn't even recorded for us, is commended by Jesus, and her actions are recorded for us to read 2,000 years later. Now, lest you walk away thinking that what I'm telling you to do is give every cent you have, please don't misunderstand. I don't think that's the point of this text, but the question becomes for us, how then, how, how then ought we to think about our giving? How do we think about our money and specifically as it relates to giving? Because we have a, we have a tendency to view our giving through the lens of of what allows us to remain safe or what allows us to remain comfortable. So I look at my budget and I look at my responsibilities. I look at all of the things that I want to do. I look at all of the things that I'd like to do. And then once that's done, I figure out what money's left. And I figure out what I want to spend on those extra things. I figure out what I want to give towards God. But when we're told in this text that she gave everything she had, what we're being told is that she gave up what little control she had left of her life the only thing that she had the only security she had the only money to her name she gives in this moment and through her actions she's not she she is declaring publicly god i trust you to provide me what i cannot provide for myself Do you understand that this is exactly what we're taught by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 26, and here's what Jesus says for us. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Now again, I don't think the point of Jesus' instruction there is that we ought to be financially irresponsible. The Bible also tells us that a man who leaves his children an in inheritance is blessed. It tells us that a man who does not provide for his children is an infidel and worse than an unbeliever. The Bible has very harsh language for financial irresponsibility, but what this really becomes about is understanding the source of our provision. And as soon as we start touching on what is the source of our provision, inevitably we start touching on things that matter a lot to individual people. Because when we think about that idea, we tend to think about all the years that we applied ourselves in school, working hard and maybe getting a degree and all of the things that we did in order to move ourselves ahead in life. And we think about the early mornings and the late nights and the long weekends that we spent at work and all the vacations that we didn't go on and the fun things that we didn't do. And we start to have an attitude that says, ultimately everything I have is mine. It all belongs to me. I've worked for it. I've earned it. It was my efforts. It was my... And we have to stop for a moment and consider what is the actual source of our provision. And I think we find the answer in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, which says this. It's a familiar passage, but I want you to hear it. Here's what it says. The God who made the world and everything in it Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Listen to this, because this is going to come up later. As though he needed anything. Since he gives himself, or since he himself rather gives to all mankind life and breath and what? And everything. What he says is the life that you have and the breath that you have, everything that you have, ultimately comes from God himself. And is given to you to steward. But he doesn't even end there. He goes on and he says this. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind, listen, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So understand what that means. The intelligence that it takes for you to work your job the physical strength that it takes for you to show up each and every day even the nation and the economy into which you were born were all ordained and granted by God now does that mean that our work is insignificant does it mean that there is no reward for hard work no obviously that's not what it means at all there's all kinds of scripture that it's going to talk about what it means to to earn a fair wage and and all of those sorts of things. But what it means is, when we come to understand what the actual source of our provision is, let's start with the place that the Bible starts, which is that everything we have, not only the job and not only the place we live and not only the economy in which we participate, but the very breath that we breathe and physical sustenance that we have, everything comes from God himself. And when you start to think of your life that way, it changes the way that you view everything. It shifts your mindset. It shifts your thinking. Your perspective is is completely changed. And as if that's not enough, to put this in stark contrast in Acts chapter 17, in Paul's sermon, he actually goes so far as to say this. He says, do you understand that the God who made the world, everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by hands. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. In other words, God is not sitting in heaven going, man, I really hope he cracks his wallet open today. It's been tough around here. I don't know how my mission is going to get done if that guy doesn't tap into his bank account. I'm a little bit thin. I don't know if I have enough resources. No, God is not sitting in heaven hamstrung until we determine to give. God is not a charity. And that's important for us to remember because our tendency is to view giving, particularly as it relates to mission and and God's mission in the church and all those sorts of things, we tend to view it in the same light as we view a charity. Meaning, once I see a need demonstrated, I will respond with a decision as to whether or not this cause needs my giving. But do you understand that for the Christian, that is not the calculation? That is not the primary consideration with which we approach giving to God's work. In fact, we're told for the Christian, it is both a responsibility and a privilege to give. See, for the, for the Christian, the question is not, should I give, but rather, what would God have me to give? And ultimately, and, and perhaps most practically, that idea leads us to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, which says this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver and it all comes back to where we started God is most interested in your heart And the reason that finances are so important for the Christian, the reason that giving is so important for the Christian, the reason that people in churches get so uncomfortable when we talk about finances and giving is because it presses on those areas of our heart and life where we tend to think about things in terms of what's mine. But the beauty of that text is that God is saying to us in no uncertain terms, our giving is not to be reluctant and it's not not to be out of compulsion, which means this, if the only reason you are giving is because you feel an obligation to give and there is nothing in your heart that receives joy in being able to demonstrate an act of worship to God in your giving, keep your money. Keep your money because that's not what it's about. It's not about compulsion, and it's not about obligation. What is it actually about? For God loves a cheerful giver. Because when we demonstrate in in giving, uh, when we demonstrate a cheerful heart, what we are declaring to ourselves and to God is, I understand that everything that I have comes from you. I understand that everything that belongs to me is actually on loan from you. I understand that I am a steward of it. I realize that there is a purpose for it. And so, yes and amen to the fact that part of what money does is allow us to to pay for our bills and to live in our home and to pay for our gasoline and all of those sorts of things. And yes and amen to the idea that money is to be used in part for the pleasure that we can receive from things that we purchase. But if our understanding of what money is stops there, we've missed a huge piece of what God intended us to understand. So here's the question that we need to pose to ourselves: What motivates you to give Or to not give? And I want you to actually answer these questions in your mind. Actually think and consider where your heart is on these. I think this is a good diagnostic question for us. Because the answer actually reveals our motivation. And in addressing this, one pastor theologian pointed out something that just caught my attention in a new and fresh way this week. He pointed out that selfishness and self-righteousness have the same root. And here's the explanation that he gave. He said this. He said, look, selfishness at its very root is born of a desire to control. It's the idea that either money can provide me happiness, and it can provide me status, and it can provide me security, and it can provide me comfort, it can can provide me safety, it can provide me meaning, or money is the one thing that's going to stand in the way of me being poor. I know I don't want to be poor, therefore I'm going to hoard and keep things to myself and I'm going to be selfish and use money just for me because I'm afraid of what it means for me if I lose that meaning. And at its very root, selfishness is an attempt to control circumstances. But he also says that self-righteousness is born out of a desire for control. It's a very different control, but control nonetheless. See, self-righteous giving is also born of control because it declares that if I give, God won't judge me. If I give, God has to bless me. If I give, God will accept me. If I give, God owes me. And in a very real way, through self-righteous giving, people try to put God into their debt. God, I've given you this, now I'm expecting this return on my investment. So if neither of those were the motivation for the Christian, and if giving for the Christian is supposed to be done cheerfully, which is a hard concept for many, if not most of us, and if it's not supposed to be compulsory or, or obligatory, but, but it's supposed to be done out of a heart and desire to worship God, what then actually motivates a Christian to give? And I think we find the answer, actually, in the Old Testament, David in the building of the temple, offers a prayer in the assembly of all the people. He's gathered everyone together. He's declaring his heart before the Lord. And here's what he prays in 1 Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, "'Praise be to you, O Lord, "'the God of our Father Israel, "'from everlasting to everlasting. "'Yours, Lord, is the greatness "'and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and everything in earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things, and your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people? Listen to this who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this. Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. See, for the Christian, we give acknowledging that everything we have belongs to the Lord already. And we give to him realizing that he is a God who is not stingy, With us, As David points out, this is the king of the universe and all glory and honor and praise and worship and might belongs to him. This is the God who sits outside of time and sits outside of creation that holds everything in his hand. And that very same God saw fit to be generous with us. See, for the Christian, when we understand that God gives us everything we have anyway, it opens up our hands. It realizes that control is not something that we need to grasp because God has showed himself faithful over and over and over again. He will control things better than we could ever control it. He will provide in ways we wouldn't have expected. It is all his, and we're just stewards of it. And since God has dealt generously with us, we are called and invited and actually find privilege in the idea that we get to give generously to him. And if we're honest, and I'm not asking anybody to be honest out loud in this moment, but just let's be honest for a second and say, how often do we actually think about generosity in those terms where we think about it as a privilege? For many of us, it's a hard place to get to. But if it's hard for you, a good place to start is to think back about who this God actually is and what he does. And the answer may come back from some, but I'm, I'm not wealthy. And that's where the example of this woman comes back so strikingly. We understand that God gives not just a material wealth, but he gave us what was most valuable to him. What meant more to God the Father than anything else? The life of his beloved son. And God didn't just see fit to give us clothing and food and shelter that that would have been more than sufficient and more than gracious of him to provide. No, he gave us everything. He gave us that which cost him infinitely. That through the gift of Jesus Christ, the generosity of the Father was on full display. And he did that so that we might receive the acceptance and the security and the hope and the confidence that comes not from your retirement plan, but from knowing where your eternity lies. And so in responding to him with giving, we demonstrate that he is the source of our provision and the object of our worship. That just as much as our singing or our prayers, we worship him with our sacrificial giving because all of our offerings, to quote Lewis, are intrinsically worthless, but valued for their intention. We do it so that God would look on us and be pleased to see a heart that is fully dependent on him. So practically, my invitation to you is to consider how your finances actually reflect your heart attitude towards God. And not to give out a compulsion or obligation, but where you see a misalignment of affections, where you see a desire for control, to consider what it means to actually recognize God's hand of generosity and faithfulness in your life, to trust him to an extent that you may not have trusted him before, to look for his faithfulness and dwell on those things and rest in his beauty and his goodness, and then to be faithful to what he calls you to do. And the opportunity that we have now as we come to the communion table is to recognize in a very real and visceral way what the generosity of our Father in heaven actually looked like. That as we come to the table, as we partake of the bread, we're recognizing that, that what God valued most in the world, the, the life and the well-being of his son was actually given for us. That just like that widow who gave everything she had, God the Father gave everything he had to us. That Jesus' body was torn for us that his blood was shed for us. And so as we come to this table, would you keep in mind what the generosity of the Father towards you actually looks like. Allow it to be a marker, an indication, a pointer, a reminder to your heart as to whom it is that we love and serve.